uh, kind of main theme that I want to talk about tonight is this area of intention, which has been, I think it's a really key area of understanding and freedom. It's the link between understanding and action. And it's been in my life in the last couple of years anyway, it's becoming a really kind of a focal point of my practice. By practice, I don't mean just sitting on the pillow. I mean the, you know, waking up or attempting to wake up from moment to moment throughout the activities of our life. When Buddhism is spoken of in the big overview, it's spoken of as having two wings, the way a bird needs two wings to fly. The wings are that of great wisdom and great compassion. And just as a bird can't fly with one wing, true freedom, deep understanding does not arise without both of these aspects. I was listening to a talk by Bob Thurman once, who is quite an interesting Tibetan scholar, former monk, kind of a wild man, actually. But um, he said something that I just found very interesting. He said, he's talking about wisdom and compassion, and he said, the, the wisdom of emptiness, which is what we speak of, the sense of everything is empty, of a separate self. The wisdom that we look at is we notice that all thoughts, all sensations, all emotions arise, we're with them, they pass, None has any more intrinsic importance than any other as we sit here on the pillow. This wisdom of emptiness can seem quite cool, quite removed. We generally, at least at first, touch it in silence with concentration in our formal practice here. I think that coolness, that touching in silence, is what often or at times can lead some of us to think, well, What's this got to do with the rest of life? Or to feel I'm being a bit self-absorbed in this practice. When wisdom is imbued with compassion, met with compassion, the compassionate aspect comes from the heart. Compassion is an energy that connects. And in fact, compassion only arises from connection with ourselves, with our own pain, connection with the world and with other beings and the pain of other beings. So compassion does not arise or is not just from the coolness of emptiness. And the two need to go together. Luckily for us, that's the natural way it works. That the, uh, the natural outcome, the natural manifestation of wisdom, of understanding, is that of compassion. It's been said that compassion is the link between Buddhas and beings. That Buddhas don't just, when they're fully enlightened, they don't just turn their back on the rest of us poor souls and go off and sit in the bliss of emptiness for 45 years until their life, you know, peters out. But they, they spend, and you notice it's they, because there's this whole worldviews of eons and eons of worldviews, not just our little minuscule one of this life. Um, and Buddhas don't just go off and sit alone, but they really spend their time helping others, and that's through the enormous power of compassion. So, compassion is the link, you could say, between wise understanding and wise action. And how this link is observable, or how it manifests in our experience, is something that we can explore more easily in the silence and simplicity of a retreat, is that the way compassion, or anything else for that matter, which I'll get into in a minute, But the way it manifests is intention, in this quality of intention. And that's why intention can be so important. For example, 
When we're just sitting, as I said, the wisdom of emptiness, everything comes and goes. Greed, hatred, anger, rage, self-love, pain in the knee, murderous feelings, total feelings of unity with the world. You know, just the whole litany. And this could all be in an hour. And you sit, you watch it, it comes, you notice it, very nice, it goes, okay. The same attitude this practice brings to whatever arises, no discrimination whatsoever. That's the wisdom of emptiness. And then we can say, well, but that doesn't work so well in the world when we have to act. Where these states of mind and heart, where the way we understand things begins to make a difference is when these murderous impulses or these feelings of great love and unity, when they manifest as an intention giving rise to speech or action, then it does matter. It's fine for the murderous murderous feelings to arise. We really note it with acceptance. It passes. That's really fine. But if it manifests as an intention and you get up with a hatchet and go to the person next to you, it's not so fine. You know? And it's really to incorporate both of these aspects in our practice. Padmasambhava, who was... uh, He's seen as the person who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. So he's sort of revered in Tibetan Buddhism as the father of the whole lineage. And he said once, um, although my view is as spacious as the sky, includes everything, the view of ultimate truth, my respect and respect for cause and effect and my actions are as fine as grains of flour both aspects are necessary. So I see intention as a key factor for how our understanding, our insights transfer to the way we are in the world. And this was, at least the way I interpret what the Buddha said. You have to realize it's all coming through little veils of not complete clarity always. But how I interpret what the Buddha said in speaking about intention, he gave it really strong importance. In the Eightfold Path that Jack spoke of the first night, the first aspect being wise understanding, how we understand the world. And this gives rise to the second aspect, which is often translated as wise aspiration or wise thought. It's also translated as wise intention. And then the third aspect, third, fourth, and fifth, are how we move and speak and act in the world by speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And so just by the ordering of that, you can see really clearly that how we understand the world gives rise to our intentions, to our thoughts, which then inform how we act. So if our understanding of the world, for example, is that the only thing that brings true happiness is having as many material possessions as possible, that's going to inform our intentions of how we act. We'll act to get more things, and that will be seen as the greatest good. If our understanding uh, as a small child was that if I speak up and say how I really feel or ask for something I need, I'll get beaten, then we really learn our view of the world. Our understanding is don't ever open your mouth to say the truth because you'll get creamed for it. And that informs how we speak, how we act, how we live our lives. So you can see how as our insights into what is true arise on or off of retreat, it quite naturally informs how we think, what our intentions are, and then how we act. So to say a little bit about what intention is, we talked a little bit about it this morning in the instruction, noticing that basic sense that kind of informs a movement, a feeling of about to, 
you know, about to move, about to get up, about to open your eyes. Sometimes it manifests as thought, a thought of, I'm going to do this now. Sometimes it's just a little sense. But it's the link between the mental and the physical. In the way the Buddha described how things work in the world, in the big picture, I'm sure you've all heard of karma, which karma translates specifically, the word karma means action. And the teaching of karma is really a teaching of action and result, cause and effect. That whatever we do, there is some effect that arises from that. That effect in itself then becomes the cause for another effect, and this whole chain of dependent origination goes on and on and on. A lot of us, our tendency, when we're not really thinking, when we look at whether an an action, so to speak, is good or bad, or the terminology used more skillful or unskillful, a little less loaded, we tend to look at what's the effect, what's the result of that action, or what does that action look like. But in, in the way of looking at karma, in the way of the, that the Buddha described our life, what really determines the skillfulness, the unskillfulness, the result, not outward result, but the karmic result or feedback that we'll get from a particular action has nothing to do with what it looks like from the outside and it's everything to do with the intention. The intention that informs an action is what is the seed of both our own karmic result, how it manifests in the world. And this is, in some ways, a very subtle point, but it is so key because it's so easy to overlook. Well, and the second factor of this, that an intention that arises in the moment, and like everything else, an intention arises, has its effect, it passes. Another one arises, has its effect, it passes. That as an intention arises, for example, take the intention to leave the hall. That intention can arise from the whole variety of mental experience. It can be accompanied by any of our whole palette of mental states that we're getting familiar with. So intention can come from greed, from hatred, from self-loathing, from generosity, from boredom, from compassion, from wise seeing, from mindfulness, so that intention can have a whole range. As someone pointed out this morning, it seemed like there were different kinds of intention. That's absolutely true. So take the example of someone in the hall coughing, having a coughing fit, and they get up and leave. From us uh, sitting on the outside, there's no way to know, really, What's the intention of that action? That can only be known to the person, and that's really what determines for that person the skillfulness or unskillfulness. So I could leave the hall coughing out of acute embarrassment, out of fear of what other people think, out of you know self-hatred and just not wanting to stay and submit to that, out of real concern and compassion, for other people's silence or fear that I'll give them a cold, it can run the whole range. We can't tell from the outside. And so you can see how important and how valuable mindfulness is for our own experience because it really takes the ability to bring our awareness back to the point of intention to have some clue for ourselves why we're doing what we're doing. And this is really the key of all our actions in life. Why why am I doing what I'm doing? This is how we find out so much about ourselves. And often we just look at the results of our actions and and wonder why our experience of the results isn't jiving from what we think we want to happen. But we're often not really clear about what our intentions are, which is understandable because they're often quite mixed. It's very subtle. So we've been talking about, in the instructions this morning, just that sense of about to, the intention before movement. Even that can be very complex, but it's the most simple to notice. Sometimes it can manifest as thought, and in a broader sense, 
which I'll talk about a little later, we can look at intention as manifesting as our purpose in life or in bigger situations, not just a momentary movement, but sort of what's our larger intention in some of the big decisions we make in our life and some of the choices we have to make. So I want to go back to this point of saying that the natural fruit of understanding is compassion. This is something Thich Nhat Hanh says a lot. And I can't say how many people I've spoken to here on the retreat who describe some little kind of annoying experience they had. And I don't know if you recognize that what you're talking about is just this that the experience you had that was so unpleasant, that the way you were able to be with it in a mindful way was really showing how understanding leads to compassion. Just for example, there have been innumerable little stories about difficulties in the hall. You know, this person's too close, this person's too far, this person took my place, this person's coughing, whatever. And it's great. It's great to have so many people in the hall. It's great to have these little bumpings, rubbings coming up. There's... Who is it? I think it's a Korean Zen saying. I'm not exactly sure, but that the way they clean potatoes is to put them all into a big vat of water and then just bump them all against each other. (laughs) That's sort of how our... (laughs) I guess I don't need to say any more about that. (laughs) But so, for example... Someone will say that someone near them was just driving them insane, all the anger, all the rage. And they were aware, you know, we're all aware that that's a little bit out of proportion. But we're also all aware that it doesn't just evaporate. We try to go, oh, it's okay. It's not okay. We hate it. (laughs) And we know that. But something in us keeps us from either running out in total frustration or getting up and yelling at the person. You know, we choose the middle way. And that's the whole path of Buddhism, is the middle way. And you sit with it. And at some point, and it's sort of like I was talking about with the fear, at some point, you stop just sitting and hating, and you start sitting and hating, but with mindfulness of hating. (laughs) Now, that's a huge difference. We always think, well, the hating has to go away first, but it doesn't. It's just that the mindfulness of hating is what arises. And that in itself is a natural purification. And so often, so often it happens that at some point, the person says, you know, it went on for an hour, it went on for a day, it went on for a week, it doesn't matter. At some point, you say, you know, I just started really softening. And I saw how the suffering was for me, and I really realized that person was just doing the best they could. This is the natural arising of compassion from understanding. Understanding not intellectually, but that arises from our willingness to bring our attention, our mindful awareness, simply back to the present moment experience. That's all we have to do. The understanding of what's really going on arises by itself. This happens over and over and over. And I'm just trying to point it out because I think often we know it happens but in a way later on you don't give yourself credit you think oh you're talking about you know practicing out of compassion for all beings forget it I have no compassion that's too much I don't even know what compassion means we do know what compassion means it arises often for ourselves and for others just that little feeling of oh that must be hard or oh this is really hard you know, I'm doing pretty good to hang out with this. That's compassion. It doesn't have to be a big show. You don't have to join Mother Teresa's nuns. You know, it, it doesn't have to be grandiose. We can start little. And I think that the, one of the reasons compassion is the natural outflow of understanding is because in that moment, whenever we really touch or even have an intimation of what is true of our true nature that sense of luminous clarity whatever you want to call it there is in that 
whether we're conscious of it or not, there's no separation. In that place of knowing what we all are, there's no more sense of separation or incompleteness. And in that total completion, in that sense of unity, the idea of craving or of anger or of needing to pull something in or push something away, it doesn't even arise. It's irrelevant. And even though that might not be what we're consciously knowing, I think intimations of this truth are what arise. And in that, there's the melting of separation, the ability in that moment in feeling my own pain to feel another's pain, or just the sense of, yeah, we're both here together trying to fit into this space instead of my space, your space. It's our space. That just arises quite naturally. It is, I think, in a very simple, simplistic way, how wisdom gives rise naturally to compassion. Okay, that's the upside. (laughs) We can't just talk about, you know, how nice it is because we all know that's part of our experience, but it isn't the totality of our experience. At least not mine. I'll say it's not the totality of my experience. Compassion and love, I think, are our truest expression. As the Dalai Lama said once, he thinks compassion is the truest expression of a human being. That little children, he notices, have compassion more than other emotions. So, of course, hatred is also an expression of human beings, but not our truest one. Our truest one is compassion. But yes, when we're not touching understanding, when our habits of mind are predominating, when those clouds I talked about those the other night are really obscuring the sun, when all we can see and recognize are the clouds, when our experience is unexamined, the habits that commonly arise in many of us that are really deeply ingrained are habits of wanting, of greed, desire, fear, self-protection, anger, just spacing out and wanting distraction. The three basic so-called poisons, and they really do poison our understanding of greed, hatred, and confusion. They're deeply ingrained habits. They're not our truest nature. Something that, I don't know, I've just been kind of becoming more and more aware of in the last couple of years is Often, I think, in in the world at large, the force of these habits of mind as intention, habits of greed or of anger, often, or or hatred or indignation, but indignation with a tone of anger, of judgment and hatred, they are very powerful forces for action. And what I've been finding interesting is, is, it seems to me how often unquestioned these particular habits of mind go as the most valid or useful intentions that give rise to action. Many on this, as again, this is why intention is the important aspect of, of, of how we act, not just the result. You think how many really valuable and important things are done, come to be, how many people work for the environment or work in science or work for peace, And the motivation is really anger, rage, and fear. It's a huge motivation for action. It's very energizing. And it seems to get a lot done. But if you pull back and look in the big picture, though, at some point, it goes slightly awry. The results seem to go slightly awry. Like, for example, um, last summer I was at a retreat that just a straight retreat just like this but it was specifically for quote burned out environmentalists <laughs> people very active and for many years deeply active in the environmental movement lawyers scientists doctors whatever some who were had a spiritual practice and some who didn't and it and came out in many of the discussions that what had motivated them most deeply and had kept them active all these years was anger 
Yeah, and why were they so burned out? That was a lot of it, which they would bring this up themselves. This wasn't like my observation. This is what people were telling me. Anger kind of burns up the ground that feeds it. It can't sustain itself as a reliable and balanced motivating force for action, even though it seems to get so much done. Or I've been, it's painful, but I've been fascinated to watch what's been going on in all of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And I remember when um, some of the totalitarian regimes first started to break apart, there was, at least from here, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know what it was really like over there. What it was reported and how people seem to feel here was some sense of euphoria, you know, oh, the good is finally winning and, you know, fear and despotism is falling apart. Now everything will be flowers and beautiful. And look what's happened. I mean, it's, it's incredibly painful, but it just seeing that one fear, the fear of the totalitarian regime, was just keeping a lot of other really deep fears or greeds kind of submerged. And now, rather than fear of whoever the dictator is, it seems like every little group hates every other little group. You know, and there's a great fear of the other, the stranger. And there also is a lot of greed that arises. And it's that the the purification really has to come in our own hearts, in our own intention. You know, that it can't just be that we rearrange how things are outside and then everything will be okay. That the suffering, the immense suffering in this world, I don't even need to go into. It's unthinkable, absolutely unthinkable. We're not that different. The suffering all arises from human action. And human action is driven by intention. And without investigation, without a willingness to look, the deepest habits of intention are those of confusion and greed and anger and fear. Again, with the deep somehow thinking this will make me happy. That's the confusion. So I feel, in some ways, it might seem self-serving to sit here on a pillow, to be in this idyllic environment, you know, while there's so much suffering going on in the world. But I feel deeply, if we have the willingness to keep on bringing our attention back, to really be willing to be honest and accepting of whatever we see in our experience, to really notice our intentions, they will begin to purify to change, and it will have an enormous effect in our lives, and it really ripples outwards to everyone we're connected with. And I'm I'm really, I'm not exaggerating, I don't think, to say that what we experience here, one yogi said to me once, he said, after some, you know, pillow wars in the hall, and who sits where, and this is my turf, you know, and fighting it out to who gets first in the lunch line, and there's, we have all kinds of wars during the three-month course, you know, wars of turn on the light, turn off the light, turn on the light, turn off the light. It's really intense. Can you imagine something that's really been blown out of proportion for you here, and you're sitting with it for two months, and it gets aggravated each day when you see the person who turns on the light? Once, once in Burma, I wasn't there, but two monks, foreign monks, really committed people came to blows over whether the fan should be off or on. It's serious. As one yogi said to me once, this is how world wars start. <laughs> Luckily, all we have here is pillows, you know. We can't do too much. What I think is so it's interesting to me, in fact, kind of a, it's sad, actually, and kind of amazing, is, is almost, and maybe you guys don't assume this, but I've just been noticing it in conversations, not particularly here, but just the last couple of years, is a kind of underlying assumption that often comes up, well, but if I give up desire and anger, how will I ever do anything? If someone said to me once, well, if I don't have desire, what will I do, just sit in my room all day? You see the un- unconscious assumption is that that's all we have to act from, desire and fear and anger. It's, it's really kind of sad. But it, it gives us a, a chance to really open up 
and explore other possibilities. And it isn't so easy necessarily. Last summer, was it? Yeah, last year, I took uh, a self-defense course called Model Mugging, which is (laughs) very intense. I don't don't know. Honestly, the, the conscious intention I had to take it was as a way to cultivate compassion. I know that might not make sense, but that, that, that was really <laughs> why I went to take it. I thought, well, if I really confront my fear of being attacked, then I won't be so afraid to move into dangerous, or what I perceive as dangerous situations, and I can, you know, more open to the fear and respond with compassion. That was my thinking. Whether that was a self-delusion, I don't really know. And the way this course works is they have guys, it's just for women, the men's is, is different, but they have guys that are all padded, I mean really hugely padded, these huge helmets and pads and everything, because you're taught to, to um, they come and attack you, and you're taught to defend yourself full strength. It's not just like you do this move and this move and this move, you really have to practice doing it full strength. And they would have, you have five sessions, each one's five or six hours long, I mean it was really intense and really exhausting. And uh, I found out pretty soon I actually wasn't going to confront my fear because these guys would come to attack, but I never really could think, I knew they weren't going to hurt me, even though they were just coming at me. I knew they weren't going to hurt me, but still, the whole thing is to encourage you to get up your energy and really do the things they teach you with all your strength, with all your power. And the way that they cultivate bringing up the energy, of course, is anger which in many cases I can understand. I'm not saying anger is not important to feel. Many of the women in the class had been raped or abused and the fear had been so paralyzing that they could not even say no or even defend themselves and to get in touch with the anger and free the energy and let the anger out, I think is extremely important. So I'm not saying that that's not an important part of it. But what struck me was there was never any intimation that there could ever be any other motivation than that. And I remember the first day we were all in the group, we had a lot of group get-togethers, and you know, they're trying to rev us up, and they keep you screaming all the time. Cause that, <laughs> well, it breaks the freezing, actually. It's a helpful technique. If you ever attack scream, it really gets your energy going. But then at the end of the group, one of the system instructions stomped us and said, great, let's go, kick ass. And I thought, oh. I don't don't know if it's in the right place. (laughs) And so, I I spent my time, I mean, it was really a challenge to get my energy up because I never got angry. Also, I don't have a history of being attacked or abused. I didn't have something like that to draw on either. But um, I never could get really angry and I consciously kept saying, okay, can I bring up this level of energy to repel an attacker out of some other motivation? Can we have clear, direct action just out of a motivation of clear seeing? No, I'm not going to let you punch me in the face. You know, without hatred, without fear, can it actually come from compassion? I can't say I got to that place. I got to where I could act without feeling angry and really bring up a lot of power. I can't say I actively felt compassion. But I just, I just thought it was, a, it was very interesting for me as a way to begin to discover how to act and without it having to be only from the so-called negative force of intention. And if we look around, again, we can only know from the outside, but some of the people who seem to be most driven by the intention of compassion, whether or not you agree with their viewpoints, that's got nothing to do with it. I'm just talking about how the intention of compassion can lead to much more deeper and long-lasting action and effect than rage can or fear can. You take someone like Mother Teresa. Again, whether you agree with how she does things, that little lady has done an incredible amount of stuff. Or Gandhi, or Sister Fong, who I don't know if you've met her, she works with Thich Nhat Hanh. She is, an, to me, an amazing woman, just a powerhouse of energy and commitment. She's involved in 10 million different projects, seems to have very deep understanding and a lot of compassion, what you'd call tough compassion, not, oh, you poor thing, but really 
it seems to me that she acts from a strong intention of compassion. I just want to read something that she wrote once, if I have it here somewhere. I don't seem to have it. Something, oh, here it is. This, to me, is the expression of a real strength of compassion that greed and anger can never have. This is a eulogy she wrote, part of a eulogy she wrote for some friends during the Vietnamese War, some close friends who had been killed by grenades that were thrown into their school. We cannot hate you, you who have thrown grenades and killed our friends, because we know that people are not our enemies. Our only enemies are ambition, jealousy, hatred, and the misunderstanding that leads to such acts of violence. Please allow us to remove all misunderstanding so that we can work together for the happiness of the Vietnamese people. We must share the responsibility for the poverty and injustice in our country. I think it takes an amazing understanding and greatness of heart to even write something like that, much less mean it. And I I believe that there's a strength from that that none of our confusion and delusion can ever come close to matching. It's just that the habits are so strong we sometimes forget that there's another possibility. That's the beauty of this practice of mindfulness. By our willingness to simply look, first it wakes us up to our habits. By even remembering to notice the intention, you might have noticed it today, it can give you a moment of choice. Some people reported just kind of playing with that in movement, noticing an intention to move arising and then not moving. Notice it arise and then not moving and getting to the place, quite a few people said, well, what will ever make me move? It's fun to play in. But then suddenly some intention arises that is somehow powerful enough and you move. That's on a simple level. But we can notice that, and it is how the noticing that gives us choice purifies naturally the intention. Again, the time when you're so filled with rage at someone here, and you don't do anything about it, and you just stay, That's the purification, noticing the intention, and it purifies naturally. It changes to care, to compassion. Or when, you know, you see there's one last piece of cake and everything in you wants to throw the person ahead of you out of line and grab it, and you restrain yourself. And maybe a real joy comes up. Wow, isn't it great? They look so happy to get that piece of cake. Now, the noticing of the intention with the mindfulness, that might have seemed like something you did, You noticed it. You made a deliberate choice not to act. And then the intention sort of purifies, changes quite naturally. It's not always that we have to work so hard. And sometimes I think we can get discouraged because we think, well, once we see that this intention, say, of greed isn't so helpful, attachment brings suffering. Well, once we see it, that should be it, right? It's clear. I've really felt the suffering, the habit should go. And it can get quite discouraging at times when it doesn't. Someone, uh, last summer I think, I heard an analogy that I really love. It's like, our, our old habits don't just vanish, unless I'm sorry to tell you, but that they don't just vanish. But this person said it's sort of like they slowly wear out, like a piece of cloth, you know, and first, you can't see through it at all, and you use it and use it and use it for years and years and years. I don't know how many years, a lot of years. And it slowly gets thinner and thinner, and it's sort of translucent. You can see through it, and it gets some holes in it, and then it's really clear, and it just slowly, slowly wears out. And in the end, you hardly notice that it's gone. It's been so gradual. And that's really, that really fit with my experience. That's a lot what it's like. Nisargadatta Maharaj said once, Do not be afraid of freedom from desire and fear. 
It enables you to live a life so different from all you know, so much more intense and interesting, that truly by losing all, you gain all. So just notice sometimes the tendency, if I let this desire fade away, where will I be? Who will I be? Who will I be without this self-hatred? Who will I be without constant judging? And I love it so much. You know, it's like anything's better than freedom from desire and fear. It's really wonderful. So our intentions do purify much naturally through our willingness to be with them. But also, the Buddha was so practical, there are also ways that we can consciously, just gently help to guide our intentions, to incline our mind to the intentions of compassion, to the intentions of loving kindness, just in gentle ways. And that's actually what we've been doing with the loving kindness meditation. Sometimes people find say about the loving kindness, I don't get it. You're telling us to just be with whatever is and then you turn around and say, wish that people's suffering may go away, wish that things can be different and all. We're not doing loving kindness as some kind of naive wishing, you know, like a magic gem, if I wish then everything will be okay. But what it really is, is a cultivation of intention. That each time we say and truly mean, you know, may I be free from suffering? That's an intention. We can't control the result, as you well know. You can't even make the feeling of loving kindness come up, much less can you say, I will no longer have suffering. But in this working with simply feeling, and not just repeating the intention, you know, like in a rote way, but tuning into it and meaning it, it has a profound effect. Often, again, one that's not noticed at first. The Buddha said once that what you think about, what you reflect upon often, towards that the mind will naturally incline. Which is sensible. It makes sense. Well, in continuing to reflect upon, arouse the intention of loving kindness, that begins to manifest in a much more spontaneous way. And it's quite interesting because very often, especially if you've been doing an intensive retreat of loving kindness or doing it a lot, many people have said, and I found this to be true myself, you can say it and feel it, but you don't, it doesn't really feel like that much is going on. Especially if we have the idea that the strengthening of the intention of loving kindness means from now on I'm just walking around in this bliss of unity and love, and love spontaneously arises a sense of oneness with every being we encounter. Yeah, it's not like that. But I found, and also many people I've talked to have found, that on leaving a retreat, coming back to your everyday activities, your everyday relationships, and thinking, nothing happened, I don't feel any different, I don't feel any more loving. Because we're looking too big, we're looking for two kind of... Uh, significant or kind of a big noticeable change. But what you begin to find, and it's really very profound, is again, it's on the level of intention. You walk into a little situation that you before would have just made you crazy, and you start to get crazy, and then all of a sudden will come up, oh, that's okay. This is hard, but that's okay. And the whole situation just broadens out. It's okay to feel the difficulty. And in that, there's a breadth of feeling that it's also okay for the other person or for the other situation to be just as it is. And I've noticed myself this happening over and over and over. It doesn't, loving kindness or the intention of it doesn't jump over the difficulty. It opens to that and then has a much broader range, much more all-inclusive range of intention that is really lets everything be as it is and is okay with that. And it's really fascinating to notice how this arises 
it's not like saying, I think I'll make things be okay. It comes by itself. What we reflect upon frequently towards that, the mind will naturally incline. And so it does itself. You think you're just sitting here feeling like a stone saying, may I be happy, may I be happy, may I be happy. (laughs) But if there's an intention to mean it, you know, it's having an effect. It's having an effect. So it's not just what I call a pillow practice, you know, (laughs) where you do it on your pillow and then it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of your life. Another way that I've been lately working with conscious cultivation of intention of compassion is borrowing a little bit from the Tibetans, which is cultivating their intention of bodhicitta, which translates as enlightenment heart or enlightenment mind. Now, the word citta, um, it's a Sanskrit Pali word, it shows the split we have. We have heart and mind, and that word means both. They don't make the differentiation. So, the cultivation of bodhicitta, again, it's intention, not looking for the result so much, is to clarify in oneself the intention to awaken in order to help all sentient beings awaken. Now, this might sound very grandiose if we look at the big picture, the tendency to be, you know, people, well, I can't do that. You know, I can just barely be here for my own pain. I can't be here for the pain of all beings in the world, you know. That's just too grandiose for me. You know, we're jumping over the intention and thinking that somehow we've got to go out and save all beings. But it's been a very wonderful practice for me this last year or so, is simply cultivating that intention at the beginning of a sitting. The way it was recommended to me to do it is simply to move my my attention inside, get in touch with what's my purpose, really what's my purpose in practice, tune into just the suffering in the world, the suffering beings. This is not a guilt trip. It's just tuning into what is. And in that tuning in, it's so easy for just in that one moment to arise a sense of, yeah, I'm really doing this difficult practice so that I may awaken to help all beings awaken. Just that simple. And it has a profound effect, it can, Again, the intention comes, it goes. You don't try to hold on to it through the whole sitting. But that intention can give rise to a real vastness of mind, of heart. It's said that that vastness, that all-encompassing nature, encompassing the pain of all beings, the willingness to practice for all beings, just for that moment, that vastness is sort of akin to the vastness of our original nature. It sort of approximates the same way that the unlimited quality of metta approximates that vastness, that spaciousness. And in the moment of that clarity of intention, just notice, if if you're interested, try it for yourself and see how the quality of the sitting can change. I don't mean you get better experience. I don't mean that this means that you get all pleasant. I don't mean anything like that. But the quality of our intentions that keep arising in the sitting, if I'm just sitting down and I don't really check in and clarify my intention to awaken, to help all beings, and I sit and I start to hurt, it's easy, ah, okay, I've had it, I think I've got something else to do. Who needs this? What's the point of sitting with this pain? It's too difficult. When there's that intention, that vastness of connection with the suffering of all beings, and that intention to somehow be of service, it's a lot easier to be here for what's happening. It's not nearly so self-confined. And I'm not talking about some grandiose idea of I'm so important. It's actually we're not important at all, individually. But is the whole scheme of things. What else is there to do but at least finish the sitting? and be as present as possible because it's not just for me. It really is a connection with all beings. And as I say, it's been a wonderful practice for me. It gives one more uh, energy, less discouragement. You can act without so much fear, without so much hesitation. 
You know, when your actions are not just for yourself, it's like a mother with her child. If the child's in danger, you don't, well, I don't know, I'm a little afraid, you know, I don't want to go talk to that weird guy talking to her, what if he doesn't like me? You don't think about stuff like that. Oh, you go over and you do what has to be done. Working with intention of metta, intention of bodhicitta, of compassion, can have that same effect. We can act much more directly. We still have our stuff, but we don't have to be so limited by it. It's quite powerful. At least I've been finding it that way. I was going to talk a little bit more about other aspects of compassion, but I'm not allowed to tonight. (laughs) That's okay, I could go in two directions here, and there's not that much more time, so I'll continue. This isn't so much on the um, compassion aspect of intention, but again, another way of, that I have found in daily life, how our ability to tune into intention, to notice it, can be an extremely helpful and valuable tool in broader aspects of our daily life, in areas of activity where we need to make a choice, where we need to make decisions. The ability to, and willingness, to tune into intention I found has been extremely helpful in this area. This is an aspect that's sometimes called clear comprehension. It's sort of taking the sort of microscopic aspect of mindful awareness that we have here. Are you really looking at, for example, intention that little before you stand up, before you move your finger, before you turn around? It's a little hard to do that at work or when you're, you know, in a busy conversation, and when you're taking care of your kids. But the same quality of attention, the same understanding of how intention works to link our understanding with our actions and decisions can be used in the more macroscopic way of looking things at things, at our larger activities. And again, the fact of being aware of our intentions of our purpose gives us a little space of choice. Gives us a little space. It might close up again the next second. That's okay. But it gives us a little space of choice where we might not have to just act blindly from habit. So in this larger area of working with clarity of purpose, It's the same of what's my intention in an action. Is it skillful? Is it not skillful? Am I, you know, taking this cake out of greed? Or is it okay? Am I just hungry? Very just simple things. There's also, on a larger scale, kind of tuning into, is this action, this decision, and again, this isn't every little thing you do, you know, you go to take a shower, you don't have to do this, but is this action, is this decision in accord with the most important purpose, the most important intent that I hold for myself, that I hold for my life. And this I've also found extremely valuable over the last few years. Of course, this necessitates reflecting and really looking at yourself, at your choices, at what you hold to be most dear, and what's most, what's most true for you what's most important in your life. Really consciously to clarify that for yourself, for now. Of course it can change. Everything can change. Hopefully it just refines and refines. But in our lives, in this culture anyway, most of us are so bombarded by choices. It's not like in the old days. We all have endless choices about where to live, what job to have, There's so many people in this culture change jobs every couple of years. My father had the same job for 40 years. I've lived in two houses in my whole lifetime. And I'm hardly the longest I'm in one place in the last some years is three months, and that's because of the three-month course. (laughs) 
suddenly our lives are really different. We're bombarded by, by choices and actions and, you know, should I get married or should I have kids or should I not have kids or should I adopt or should I do it artificially so I can choose the sex and I can choose the father and I can choose, you know, it's like we have untold choices and go on and on. I don't know where that one came from. <laughs> I have never in my life given thought to that. (laughs) Anyway, uh, the point I'm trying to make (laughs) is, is that Without some kind of reflection, without some kind of clear intention of what really is our deepest purpose, it's easy to just kind of drift from one thing to the next to the next. We wake up and years have gone, we wake up and our whole life has gone, and go, wait, but what about fill in the blank? What about what was really important? And so I find to take some time to really reflect we just notice when it arises spontaneously. And I would just also encourage you to really honor yourselves and honor that purpose, not to get into some kind of self-judgment or some kind of self-denigration, or I'm not good enough to have such a noble purpose or whatever. I know when this first ever arose as an issue for me, just I was on some short retreat some years ago, and it just spontaneously came out of nowhere, but with real resolve and clarity that my purpose in this life is to serve the Dharma. I kind of went, oh, who said that? Where did that come from? What does that mean? I didn't know what that meant. But the tendency that next followed was, well, who do you think you are? You know, who do you think you can never help? How do you think you can serve the Dharma? You know, as if any of us aren't the Dharma. That's all we are. And whatever we do can be a service to truth and a service to other beings. There's no way that has to manifest. So I'm not saying that should be your purpose. Whatever is really true for you, whatever is really at core, what's most important, honor that in yourself. And don't let yourself get beguiled by all those little matterings in the back of your mind of I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I don't know what this means. Yeah, you don't know what it means. But I found it to be a a beacon, like a, a really powerful kind of guide in times of decision, if I have to make a choice whether to do this, whether to do that. When I first started teaching, I would never have done it had it not been for the clarity of that. It wasn't a voice, but just the clarity of that intention arising in me. This is my purpose. It was within two months of that that the first, not opportunity, but kind of I was kind of nudged into teaching. I would never have done it without that. I hated the whole idea. I was petrified. I would have done anything to get out of it which I could have done by just saying no. And I was nudged and nudged, and uh, a couple of good friends who were usually very, if I said no, they'd go, okay, wouldn't take no. And at some point, like a light bulb went off, and I saw, oh, right, you know that thing that came up before, my purpose is to serve the Dharma? This is where I have to apply it. I'm not looking for this. It just came. And all the fear, and all the dread, and all the unpleasantness, that just becomes part of our practice. You know, it's not a problem. I mean, we don't like it, but to have fear of being uncomfortable make my decisions in life isn't really how I want to live my life. Let's close with this from Thich Nhat Hanh. The interdependence of all beings is not a philosophical game removed from spiritual and practical life. In bringing to light the interdependence of all phenomena, the meditator comes to see that the lives of all beings are one, and she or he is overcome with compassion for all. Seeing and loving go together. Seeing and loving are one. Great understanding goes with great compassion.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.